Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Garden Better. I'm Adam Woodhams, and with me is Jenny Dillon. Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm fantastic, Jen. Hey, look, this episode, we've got some great stuff coming up. We are going to try and decode that whole mystery of plant names. You know, all those confusing old McDonald EIOs and everything. Oh, I don't know. It kind of makes us a secret society, don't you think? <laughs> it's a bit like that. It's like a secret handshake, isn't it? Then we're going to have a bit of a look at uh, what's often called bush tucker. I'm going to have a chat with an absolutely fascinating bloke, Bruce Pascoe, the multi-award winning author of the book Dark Emu. I'm so looking forward to listening in on that. And of course, at the end of the show, who do we have, Jen? Milton. Yeah, Milton Black. Yes. <laughs> now, Jen. Yes. Using plant names. I do it all the time. No, no, but it's a, it's it's fraught with problems, isn't it? Often we use common names. And I will say, though, Australia is recognised as being a country where we do, in common usage, use a lot of genuine botanical names. We so do. We, we do we use do. a lot of proper names yeah. when we're talking about plants and not just us horticultural types, mm-hmm. um, but just in general nursery and, and a lot of people know an agapanthus as an agapanthus. They, they don't know it as the other common names like the Nile lily. lily. Yeah, yeah, lily of the Nile or Nile lily. You, if you said that in a lot of nurseries, people would look at you quite blankly. But do you know what? It's a good thing. It is a I'm good thing. I'm going to put my feminist hat on here. We call casuarinas casuarinas. Because in the past, they used to call them she-oaks. That's right. And the reason for that was when the settlers first came out here from Europe, they chopped it down. They said, hey, that's not bad. Kind of looks like a yoke. Not as good as, though. Not not as good as a he-oak, so it's a she-oak. Yeah, yes, so anyway, no more she-oaks, mm. though, casuarinas. Well, and the other point is, too, that those common names can be different from state to states. So if yeah. you talk about a bluegum in New South Wales, it'll be a different tree to Victoria's bluegum or Tasmania's bluegum. So yes. you can get very confusing. And reality is with this uh, technical naming, you can literally go anywhere in the world and you can have a conversation with somebody about plants and and discuss a plant and not speak the language of that person because you share a common language through yeah, the, the language global. of plants. Yeah. yeah, And it's technically called botanical nomenclature. That's the name of it. And it adheres to a process of a taxonomy or classification. That's, mm. that's the way the whole process works. Now, just to explain a little bit about how that is all put together, there is a structure to it. And the very long full names have seven main sections. So they have a kingdom and in the case of plants, it's plantae, then division, class, order, family. And the two that most concern us gardeners is genus and species. They're yes. the ones that we talk about. And then you get those little subdivisions off there, such as cultivars and varieties, varieties and things. Yeah. So, for instance, you might get a, a eucalypt, a flowering gum, and that would be corymbia. That's yes. the genus. And then physifolia would be the species. And then wildfire might be the cultivar. 
So that's the way it runs. And you might just get that referred to as Carimbia wildfire. In, but in do you short. know what also is really good about it is pronunciation is totally irrelevant. Yes. You pronounce it any way you like because I would say Ficifolia. Yes, well, and, and so because this it's is, a made-up language. This is, and this is the point we need to we need to look at too. Is that a lot of this is is a made-up language? And I should also point out too, there are three main question, uh, three main kingdoms, as I mentioned before, and they are animal, mineral, and vegetable. And yes. that's the remember the old question yes. in the guessing game: yes. is it animal, mineral? That's where it comes from: is these kingdoms. But the whole process was created of a binomial nomenclature. Was developed by a Swedish scientist called Carl Linnaeus in the eighteen century. So he basically created this whole way of pulling all of these names together. And the number of bits in that language, that botanic language, is what makes it quite interesting. I joked about the the old McDonald reference before, mm. and it's a bit like that. It's like EIEIOs all over the place. All over the place. Sometimes in very random ways. And you'd be forgiven for thinking it's Latin or that it's it's Greek, and it's not. <laughs> It's actually a little bit of everything. It draws it's, from so many different places. It's 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 Latinized. It's English basically Latinized, and then it's a mix of ancient Greek, and yes, there are made up words in there too, mm-hmm. which is which is what's kind of cool about it because you can just come up with all funky and interesting names. What you can do, I, what I find so fascinating about these names is that you can trace the origin of the plants. So if something is called a japonica. You know, it comes from Japan. Mm, and Asiaticum might be from the, the Asian region. Or Cantonensis comes yeah. from Canton in China. Yeah. yeah. So you do get those those definite definite naming things. And and sometimes they are people's names too. Like for instance, the whole group of plants, the Banksias, yeah. were named in honor of, of Sir Joseph Banks, the famous botanist that explored with James Cook. Or the Grevillea, um, Robin Gordon was after a, a breeder of of plants. But yes, that's exactly exactly right. As you said, you can you can tell a, a bit about the region of a plant. So, uh, not just that, you can tell something about the characteristics of a plant. So, jasminoides means that it's jasmine-like. Mm-hmm. Um, giganteum, huge. Yep, no points for guessing what that one means, no, and that thanks. might be in reference to the flower or to to the foliage. Um, alba means what? white. Yeah, yep. fissifolia or phycofolia, however you would like to pronounce it means like a fig leaf is the the general reference to it. Glabra means smooth. Longer flora. Long flowers. And longer folia. Long leaves. Absolutely. And this is one that I really like because you run across this a lot with herbs, officinalis. So if you see officinalis in a name, it means that it has some sort of herbal use. So that might be medicinal or culinary. Mm -hmm. So rosemary officinalis. I was thinking of that. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. But... It's not all totally sensible, and particularly with the modern botanists, they seem to have done some very interesting things with names. So there's there's actually a group of recently discovered or recently split off from another division um, of little aquatic ferns, I think they are, and they've all been named Gargar is their is their family name, uh, their genus. Yeah, and then you've got species like uh, Germanotta which is named after Stefani Germanotta, which is... Lady Gaga, Lady. my favourite singer. I think she's great. <laughs> and then there's Gaga uh, Monstra Parvara, which is named after her... Little monsters. Little monsters, absolutely. But my favourite one that I ran across when I was doing a little bit of advanced reading was a fungus recently discovered called Spongiforma squarepantsii. No. Yes, what? it's named after SpongeBob Squarepants. <laughs> It's true. 
<laughs> it is out there and it's a little fungus called Spongiforma squipansii. Well, that says something about that creature. It's a fungus. Well, you, you, you have to say, though, isn't it nice to know that even these people that are often perceived as very nerdy types do have a sense of humour and they do get a good pop culture reference? Well, that's true, but... Mm. <laughs> so next time you are looking at those confusing plant labels, just remember that they're not actually all that confusing in many respects. There can be some very good information in there. Yes. Jen, when we think about bush tucker, it's a pretty narrow range of plants, isn't it? Sadly. There's not a lot that comes to mind. And most of the plants offered, they really, look, I love them, but they do tend to be more of a novelty value than than a staple, you know, something something really substantial you'd be growing. But let's have a look a little bit at what constitutes bush tucker and a few of these different plants that people might want to Give a try in the home garden. So the colonial interpretation of our First Nations people was nomadic hunter-gatherers. What do you reckon? True or false? No. We were having a bit of a chat off about this off mic, weren't we, about yeah. how there's, there's just some things that they used as, as food sources that don't align with that whole concept of there was there was serious food production mm, going on mm. within the communities and that is not a hunt together a lifestyle yeah. well there was a couple that we talked about like i use the example of the the um the native cycad the burrowing oh, yes. it's most often yeah. called and that seed um can be very nutritious but to get the food out of that seed there's some great examples of early settlers eating one of these seeds and becoming terribly ill, Ill afterwards because yeah. they do look quite edible. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the Aboriginal people knew that to be able to use them, they would they would convert them to flour, I think. That, But basically you had to slice them extremely thin. They had to be left in running water for quite an extended period of time mm-hmm. to leach all the toxins out of them. Then they had to be dried and then they'd be turned into the, the type of product they'd use as food. And now if you're talking... Nomadic and hunter gatherer. That doesn't fit, does it? Because no. that, that implies that you you're in a place for a period of time, you're there for long enough to know what's going on. And if you're making flour, you're cooking. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's another point. That's that's not, you know, picking nuts and berries as you wander through the woods. That's yeah. that's a wee bit more substantial than that. So the I think the the simple fact is the range of foods extended well beyond berries and, you know, kangaroos, a bit of fish and some witchetty grubs. There was a much bigger range of food out there. And there are a couple of great books you can read on this topic. There's uh, Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, and we're going to be talking with with Bruce in a little while, um, and The Biggest Estate on Earth by Bill Gamage. That's another great one that it's looks at uh, how fantastic. the land was was so managed and controlled mm. by our First Nations people. But let's, let's get back to the stuff that we can actually eat and grow at home easily that's uh, not too difficult. One of my absolute faves is lemon myrtle. Mm-hmm. Do you like do you like lemon myrtle? Bacchusia citriodora. Mm-hmm. Mm, I think it's I think it's wonderful. We had one in our last garden, and it had been beautifully shaped when I bought it. So it had actually been pruned into a into a conical shape. So I was just was, wondering how you'd prune that. Yeah, yeah. And, and it and it took to pruning really well, and I kept it pruned in the in the time that we had that garden, um, because it's in that family of plants that do tolerate pruning yeah. quite well. Um, and it smells beautiful. Mm. This incredibly zingy Intense, citrus, isn't it? yeah, really, really strong. And it's it's wonderful to use in so many ways. You know, if for instance, if you were baking fish, 
you can put a few leaves in with the fish and it just infuses it with this really rich, zingy lemon flavor. One of my favorites is in tea. So if you're having a cup of green tea, you just crunch up a, a leaf of the lemon myrtle and drop that in when you're pouring the hot water in and it adds a beautiful lemon tang to the to the tea. So that's one of my favorites. Now, you and I both, I know, love the, the native finger limes. Yep. They're just fantastic what you can do with this. And they just are such a surprise. You know, these little fat fruit that are dark and ugly, they look like fat fingers. Yeah. They really do. And then you open it up and it's just this cascade of glistening pearls coming it out. Is. It's, it's like citrus gorgeous. citrus caviar is the only way to describe it. It's just incredible stuff. And they do literally burst in your mouth like like yeah. caviar except with citrus flavours and so colourful. The, the mm. fruit is just incredible. But uh, we warning there they're rather thorny little things aren't oh, they oh yes great to put under an open window if you like to have your windows open plant one there you'll hear the burglar yeah if anyone tries to get in the window you will know about it mm-hmm. yeah and here's one that i think often gets forgotten about as being a native but the macadamia yeah i know yeah it's yeah. it's one of our one of our best natives and the funny thing is that it was picked up overseas and grown before, as a crop before we got smart before, enough to start growing yeah, it ourselves. And so, aren't they just wonderful? Yeah, there's enormous amounts grown in places like um, Hawaii. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's a wonderful thing. And it is actually quite a beautiful tree too. When it's in flower, it has big, long panicles of, of flowers. They look quite lovely. And it's a very slender tree too. Mm, yeah, they're, they're quite naturally thin, so they have a good, a good narrow shape. So mm. if you had a... And a, a lovely mottled of, bark as well. Yeah, well, if you had a medium-sized backyard, they're a great one to sort of put up towards the back corner. So say, for instance, you wanted to screen out afternoon sun or something, they'd be perfect for that because yes. they'd like that that sunny condition. And the nuts are just fantastic. Mm. They're great fun to watch people trying to crack open. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and one that a lot of people don't know about, which I, I really actually quite like, um, is often called warrigal greens. And this is um, uh, grown in New Zealand as well yes. um, because it's one of those plants that's shared across regions. It is absolutely lovely. It's, it's, it's the best leafy green pesto you could make with pine nuts. Mm. Much better than basil. Yeah, you yeah, normally yeah. normally throw lots of basil you, into a pesto. If you just yeah. mix up your warrigal greens, I mean, it's like a spinach. Yeah, and it just grows. We can see it all over the coastal areas of, of yep. the East Coast. In very, very harsh conditions. It's yeah. actually fantastic for growing underneath things like citrus because it, it likes similar sort of conditions. Yeah. So you can use it as a living mulch and it's that mm. type of plant that forms a great living mulch. If you're going to um, if you're going to eat it, though, it is one of those plants that does require a little bit of um, treatment. So you don't want to eat it completely raw. It no. does need to be processed in one way or another. So you just blanch the leaves because they have a high oxalic acid content. Yes. So they can be a little little bit uh, prickly in the mouth if you don't actually don't actually do something with them first. But that's I reckon that's a, a fantastic. It should one be that, a must-have in every garden. Mm, mm. Mm. Use it for many many things in the kitchen. But lily pillies, there's another one too. We forget about the fact that the fruit on them, apart from being colourful, is very edible. The birds certainly know about it. Birds, birds do know about it. And doesn't your car know about it when the birds have been knowing about it? But um, you can make um, jams and things from it too, or yeah. you can just eat them straight off the bush. And bottle brush, this is a great one to try with the kids, that you can actually just dip bottle brush flowers into a glass of water and it's instant bush cordial because all the nectar comes all the out nectar of the, comes the, out, the bottle yeah. brush. So mm. that's that's a great fun one. But I think an interesting one to remember too is that years ago I was working with a whole lot of trainees and we did a workshop on, on various uh, bush tucker and Aboriginal foods and they were turning their noses up. It was a whole 
heap of teenagers and they turned their noses up at many of the things we were tasting. And as I pointed out to them at that time, there's a difference between edible and enjoyable that just because something isn't toxic, it doesn't mean it's going to taste absolutely brilliant. So some of these things that may have been eaten for food may have actually just been almost like a survival snack as opposed to something you're eating because you want it to be of a you know a great value as a food. So. Yeah. It's not quite like having a Mars bar on top of that. No, Everest, no, exactly. It? It's like, you know, Diane Elliott berries are often described as being um, quite edible as bush tucker. And I've tasted some and they're not very nice. But I am sure if you were in need of something, some sustenance, they would get you through. That would through, get you through. So. Mm. so have a look in your local nursery because I have noticed there is a lot more good bush tucker starting to appear with, with labels like native food and stuff like that. It's getting stronger and stronger it all is the time. Getting, it is yeah. getting better all There's the time. There's a lot of excitement in the industry there Yeah, now. so check it out. You might be surprised about what you can grow at your place. Yes. Now, I mentioned the fantastic multi-award winning book, Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, and we are fortunate enough to have Bruce on the line for a chat. Bruce, welcome, mate. Uh, lovely to be with you. Now, look, being a horticulturalist myself, and I'm a bit of an amateur history nerd, I've I've always believed I had a pretty good handle on how, how our Aboriginals, our First Nations people, how they used the land. But Bruce, I have to say, I read Dark Emu and it just, as I said to you in the first email I sent you, it just totally recalibrated my compass. Now, can you give folks a quick outline of what you explore in the book? Uh, it, it began with another book I'd written called Convincing Ground, which was about contact wars. And after that came out, I received a lot of information from people about other aspects of Aboriginal life. And um, even in the research for convincing ground, I was coming up with information which just didn't uh, gel with the idea of Australian Aboriginal people being wanderers and hunters and gatherers. And the more I began to explore it, the more obvious it became that uh, what we'd been told about uh, Aboriginal Australia was pretty much completely wrong. And Maybe that had been the self-serving nature of colonialism. Maybe it was um, other reasons that I can't understand. But anyway, that was the fact of it. And, you know, we had to re-examine the history. Um, otherwise, we were going to be uh, living a bit of a fairy tale. It, it explodes the hunter-gatherer myth and really explores the fact that, that the Aboriginal peoples were, in fact, pretty smart Agriculturalists, they were they were making use of the land in broadacre ways, and they were they were doing everything that that as a horticulturalist I would consider as being you know smart land use and smart growing, and they were they were basically breeding seeds for for particular uses. They were selecting them for their for their best characteristics. So you know they were effectively uh, hybridizing plants to get the best yeah. varieties to be to be grown as cultivars. And what we're talking about is broadacre grains um, and uh, some wonderful yams that you talk about. So they were. This wasn't just a, a wandering, wandering through the bush picking nuts and berries, as, as is, uh, you know, no. oft portrayed in the the history books, is it? No, and um, 
if people had been wandering through the bush um, picking berries, there would have been no villages and houses, um, no sophisticated uh, fish traps and things like that. So mm. as soon as you begin to look at it, uh, you realise that um, uh, there was a much more complex economy going on than we'd been led to believe. Just yeah. just fish traps alone, to me, have always stood out as being, you know, I've always saw those as an anomaly because that the trouble that you go to to create a large fish trap implies a degree of permanence. You know, that's that's not yeah. that's not something that a wandering people tend to do. And we, right. look, we've been chatting earlier in the show about the contemporary perception of bush tucker. And reality is that a lot of the way we approach bush tucker is almost as um, novelty value food, you know, it's a it's a, yeah. a berry here or a, a leaf you can use as a herb here or there. You know that there's nothing really substantial in there. And I, do you think that that in some respects this is a, a perpetuation of that? You know, colonialism. I really think is the only way you can describe it. Yeah. That you know, we are still stuck in that mentality of uh, assuming that 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 was the only sort of thing that was done. I think that's about right. Um, I think that we we seem to be stuck in that uh, view of um, Australian Aboriginal people, which was perpetuated in order to validate the. Uh, invasion of the country mm. and being a Christian country and um, supposedly moral, uh, the idea was that there had to be a reason for it and that reason uh, that was perpetrated was that Aboriginal people were just wandering around, they weren't using the soil. If that had been 80% the case, then you could imagine people accepting it fairly readily. But early occupants, early entrants rather, into country saw that wasn't the case straight away that there were crops, um, there were harvests, there were stooks of grain, there were vessels holding a ton of grain, um, and all of those things um, made people aware that Aboriginal people had an agricultural economy. Well, and yeah, subsequent yeah. generations, of course, um, it suited their purposes too because they were on the land. And even when they found evidence to the contrary, uh, they weren't going to give up their land. No, and this is what I found most interesting, that, that your book isn't based on any sort of theoretical assumptions. Basically, the foundation of, of much of what you discuss in the book is, in fact, the records of those first settlers, the first whitefellas onto that territory, onto the, yeah. country, onto the country. They were Their records are just astounding. They're, they're talking about, you know, seeing acres and acres of, of rolling, rolling paddocks filled with grain and, and piles of grain ready for threshing. And then yeah. in the same sentence, they'll talk about, you know, the, the primitive blackfellas that, that obviously must have learnt this from somewhere else. You know, there's, there's yeah. virtually a, a degree of denial as to, uh, mm-hmm. as to the reality of the situation they were staring at when they encounter a tonne of processed flour um, yeah. <laughs> and, and don't think that maybe this is actually quite an amazing thing. It's really, really hard to understand that there weren't some people around you know, just intrigued by this and wanting to explore it and uh, revel in the idea of this um, society. Mm. Uh, but colonialism doesn't allow for that, unfortunately. So mm. that was the situation we were in. It happened all over the world, wherever Europeans went. But uh, to ignore it now doesn't um, uh, say much for our inclusiveness. 
No, I, th- I think that's a point that there's, you know, I think we, we do need to reach a point of maturity and and get into some serious truth-telling on these sort of issues. It's Yeah. A, a, an interesting thing I found when I've often looked back and, and looked at many of the historic paintings of the early days of the, the colony, you would get pictures of these beautiful pieces of what looked for all the world like English countryside, you know, with the sparsely separated trees that you you could literally drive a carriage mm. through in between. I'll be honest, I'd always just assumed that that was, you know, the artists were pining for home, you know, that they were they were just wanting it to look European, to attract more settlers out here and all that sort of thing. But that is the reality of what they were seeing, isn't it? That this land yeah. was, was being so carefully managed that you didn't have that the typical bush that we see today with that dense underscrub underneath a, a tree canopy, that simply did not exist because the land was being very, very extensively, very carefully, meticulously managed with, with techniques that were being handed down from generation to generation that was effectively all just blown out of the water as soon as everybody was dispossessed. Bill Gamage wrote an interesting book. Uh, that goes a long way to explaining the situation of um, – what the country looked like. And in many ways, our current debates about drought and bushfire should be viewed through that lens, mm. that Aboriginal mm. people had manicured the land in their management systems and they were very safe, um, mm. fire safe, and yet still incredibly productive. And as a farming community, I think we're desperate for solutions but reluctant to credit Aboriginal people with the answer. This is something interesting you discuss in your book is that there was such a a wide number of grains, a number of them being gluten-free, which obviously is a very important market today. There was uh, a native rice that was relatively widely grown. So there's these crops are all there that are, are perhaps it, it could be argued are much more suitable to our our uh, climate and our environment and would require less harm and less damage to our, our water sources and, and to soils, etc. Yeah, there's sorghums and there's millets. Uh, flour is made out of water lily seed, nardu, which grows in those ephemeral lakes in central Australia. We could be growing grain over a much wider area than we're currently growing it. Mm, And even mm. though the yields per acre um, are are going to be less than irrigated crops and uh, annual crops, but if we're growing perennials that don't need any water, we're going to sequester carbon with our crops. Mm. We're also going to leave water in the river Mm. uh, so we don't have fish dying. And all farmers in all towns will have better access to water um, because at the moment we're devoting incredible percentages of Australian water to uh, crops like rice and cotton. Mm, and, and simply it's just it's not sustainable. That's what it comes down to. Now, look, I, I had an interesting chat with a, with an older bloke not too long ago, and it was one that I'm sure you will have encountered yourself more than your fair share of times. And this guy had an agricultural background, and he swore black and blue that there could not have been any prior agriculture before white settlement. And his his main argument was that, uh, you know, there's no evidence and they didn't have metal tools and they didn't have harnessed animals. Now, what would you say to the, to that sort of situation? What was curious was this guy actually got angry with me. You know, he just did not mm. want to hear about the possibility. Yep. Um, we didn't have metal tools and we didn't have harnessed animals. Uh, kangaroos are particularly difficult in harness, <laughs> and 
talk about the stump jump plough, um, <laughs> you'd be all over the joint. Um, Aboriginal people did it differently. The farming looked incredibly different uh, because it was labour intensive. Mm. Um, the whole community took part in uh, the preparation and the harvest. Aboriginal people were hardworking, uh, built water retention uh, areas, dams, irrigated some crops, uh, diverted water to make sure that their grains of field got one good watering a year. That's all they needed. It was complex and it didn't look like European farming because there's no private ownership, so there's no fences. And Aboriginal people were able to farm without the fence because their protein uh, resources were kangaroos. So they didn't need to fence them in. In fact, you can't. But you could uh, take advantage uh, of those uh, kangaroos and the emus by drafting them. And when we look at the landscape today, we can see areas. Most have been um, destroyed by uh, farming applications. But in some places, you actually see where Aboriginal people had built uh, walls to guide kangaroos into killing areas. Michael Archer says that uh, Australian farmers are already grazing kangaroos. Yeah. Why aren't we using them? <laughs> Every farm in this district grows kangaroos, and yet we concentrate on beef. Yeah. Uh, we could be killing kangaroos easily. And Archer's done investigations into uh, the killing of kangaroos and found that after intensive uh, culling uh, of kangaroos for meat, the population actually went up. Yes. Uh, I don't understand that, but it's uh, a science-based research. And it's the ultimate free-range meat. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not full of drenches. And the feet are soft. This is the, the really important thing for farmers. I am getting a lot of mail from farmers who are understanding that their reading of history shows them that our soils are highly compacted now, mm, and it's mm. to do with vehicle use and uh, hard-hoofed animals in particular, and in particular, sheep. And so farmers are beginning to think about the stock they carry. I think if we turn to those soft-footed animals, we'd be looking after our country a lot better. Well, and this is the thing, you know, the land and the, the, the animals that live on it evolve in unison, don't they? And if you look at uh, the fossil records, Australia never had hard-hoofed animals. Everything was mm. always traditionally soft-footed soft animals mm. of one sort or another. So yeah. one thing I found um, very interesting was that the, you point out in the book too that uh, there's there's evidence of, of flower grinding, seed grinding and flower making going back 30,000 years, which is in fact putting the, the Australian Aboriginals as, as being bakers around 15,000 years before the Egyptians were, which has always been the traditional benchmark for the beginning of baking. Now, that's just, that's absolutely astounding stuff. It's ancient. And a discovery last year at Mujibibi brought up a new grinding dish, which was examined and it was found that it had been used to grind grain into flour 65,000 years ago. Wow, that is just uh, This is an astounding. incredible moment in human history. Mm. We should be interested in it, we should be proud of it, and we should use it. I find it astounding as, as a horticulturalist who has a, a strong interest in sustainability that, you know, we're talking, we're talking broadacre native food crops that require less water, less cultivation, they're less damaging to the soil, they don't require the pesticides, the, the herbicides, the, the fertilisers, 
it is exactly the sort of thing that as a smart society we should be looking towards yet there still seems to be you know some sort of some sort of reluctance there particularly when we're we're staring down the barrel of, of everything that's going on with our changing climate you know that's uh, it seems to me just crazy people need to be uh, getting a better handle on this and and as I said dark emu for me was was quite an eye-opener and I, personally I believe it should be on the curriculum of every school kid in the country and that being a point you have recently released a version of the book for younger readers haven't you yeah young dark emu Mm. has been designed to bring that information to younger readers and it has been going really well the uh, sustainability is really interesting question and um um charles massey also had an interesting book come out last year called the cry of the reed wall a beautifully titled book about sustainable farming so bill gamage charles and myself we go around to a lot of conferences and talk with uh, sustainable farmers with uh, permaculturists and people like that it's really interesting to hear people who have tried these methods some farmers who have working full-time on their farms have uh, told me that by using those methods perennial grains and things like that they are uh, making as much money as they did before, mm. perhaps a bit more, but because they're not relying on chemicals, they are and ploughing, their their costs are down. That's One farmer told me that he hadn't made a uh, profit in twenty years until last year. Wow! Um, and that was because he'd cut out his chemical load. There's a real lesson in that. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's a it's an area that uh, I believe a lot more people need to uh, approach with a, a much more open mind, Bruce, and it's uh, and some of our leaders uh, need to be taking a closer look at this stuff because it is um, very, very worthy of learning from some peoples that know a heck of a lot more about the land than any of us do. So, um, yeah. yeah. Bruce Pascoe, thank you very much for joining us. There's a lot of food for thought in there. Um, seems to me that we are way past time for some serious truth-telling on this topic and you know, yeah. the, the reality of our Aboriginal agriculture. And if you'd like to learn more about Bruce's multi-award-winning book, Chase Up Dark Emu, it is a fantastic read. And uh, I've just managed to grab a, a recent reissue of it myself, which has some uh, extra notes added in there. So, even even worth more reading on a on a third approach. So, uh, Bruce, thank you very much for your time. Good on you. Thanks very much. It was lovely to talk to you. Gardening by the Moon with Milton Black. Hi, Milton. How are things going? Oh, I've been out in that garden because February is such a good good month for getting into that garden, Jen. And mm-hmm. uh, I suppose you've been the same too, have you? You've been pretty busy. Yep, I certainly have. Really been enjoying yeah. myself. Well, of course, you know, this this month of February now is such a good month for removing all those laterals from those steak tomatoes and, um, you know, sort of mm-hmm. uh, stop at five or six trusses of fruit and things like this. But overhead watering, um, if uh, you're putting an overhead water, you probably need a little bit because this February being still hot. Mm. And... Um, Keep that moisture nice and uh, um, nice around your, your plants in the garden. Uh, look, I think white fly control is something that uh, some people around the country may have to watch out for too, because these small winged insects seem to survive. But um, it does matter over the, the the winter periods in that they hibernate and then they come out and buzz into that garden. So just watch around the, the countryside with uh, that white fly, and mm-hmm. you have to control it. Now lawns also, of course. Uh, 
the spring and in, in, in sort of summer rains are, are very unfrequent at this time of the year because of the droughts that we've been having. But fortunately, we've had a bit of rain, so that's not too bad. But I think we'll find that uh, lawns do need a little bit of looking after over this uh, this month of February as well. So yeah, as from virtually today, Monday the 3rd, the moon's in Gemini, and it will stay in Gemini till Wednesday the 5th. Now, this is not a good time for planting under any circumstances because it's a fertile sign. So I would suggest if it needs watering, if it is real dry and you need watering, that's a good time to do it. Clean up around the gun, just a little minor maintenance, no fertilising, but just uh, a little bit of um, a cleaning up during that cycle. But on Thursday, the, the moon actually enters into the very fertile sign of cancer at five o'clock in the morning. So... Thursday, Friday uh, is an excellent time for the above-ground crops in, in the uh, in the garden, and you can still put your lettuces, your peas, and don't forget your cauliflower and hickory and things like this, and a bit of eggplant, celery, all those sort of things, capsicums, cabbage. Uh, they can be all planted over this particular period as well, and uh, and the old pumpkins too. They uh, they can still be grown at this this stage, and also you can pick those pumpkins that you've put in before too. They should be starting to look pretty healthy mm. at this stage as well. Mm. So that's that's a good cycle for actually planting above ground crops on Thursday, Friday. The moon enters um, on the eighth. Saturday the 8th into Leo, uh-huh. and we've got a full moon in Leo on the night. So you can have the weekend off. Just enjoy yourself. And uh, you can do that right through those two days, the week after that, Monday, right through to the last quarter on the 16th. Now, that's a full week there. The, the moon in Virgo on the 10th is a no planting time, mm-hmm. but the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th, and 15th, uh, excellent, excellent days for um, anything that grows below the ground. So your onions, your radishes, uh, potatoes, still turnips, any swedes, all those sort of things. And up until the 15th, the 16th is the last quarter of the moon. So you can have the day off there, oh, no excellent. planting at all. And just uh, uh, could perhaps put a little bit of fertilizer for those that need to on the uh, on the 16th. But I'd be more inclined to just uh, just water. But I think you'll find that uh, if you follow that rule, you'll have a good um, sort of autumn coming up garden here. Fantastic. Now, incidentally, uh, you know, I, I love blondes. I really do. My wife's a blonde, of course, but uh, I love blondes. A lot of people give blondes a bit of a hard go, but I think that um, they're pretty good in the garden too. But I'll tell you what, I I just happened to be in in Sydney this particular day, and these two blondes were sitting on the bench seat, and I overheard one of the blondes say to the other, what do you think is the farthest away, Brisbane or the moon? And the other blonde turned to her and said, hello, you can't see Brisbane. <laughs> Hello. I'll see you next week. Take care. Bye. Well, that was another great episode, Jen. I just want to rush out into the garden myself. Oh, I'm not stopping you. Off you go. <laughs> Adam, where can people find you? They can find me in the garden or they, oh. can, they can look me up on YouTube. Just search Adam Woodhams and I'll pop up there, no problem at all, or on Instagram, of course. And if you want more garden inspiration before the next episode, you can pick up the latest copy of Better Homes and Gardens magazine at selected supermarkets and news agencies. So we'll see you next time, Jen. You bet.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.